And please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, we are introduced to someone this morning, one of the most famous and godly men in all of Scripture, a man not without sin, but a man whose heart was patterned after the Lord so much of his life. It's David. And so, we actually start a new section. This is the final section in the book of Samuel, really kind of divided into three parts. You get a big focus on Samuel early on, then you see the downfall and the tragedy that is King Saul. And Saul's still around. He will be for another uh, 20 to 37 years, depending on how you do the math and the Scripture. But Saul's still going to be around, but the focus of 1 Samuel now be on King David. So, got a new slide here, I think. Yeah, 1 Samuel. Um, I never know what's behind me. I have no clue what's ever behind me, but thanks, guys. Here we go. Okay. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, I've entitled this passage, When God Chooses His Man. When God Chooses His Man. I'll admit that it is hard to be optimistic sometimes as a Christian. Uh, I believe, and you've heard me say this for a number of years, that Christians should be the most optimistic people on the planet. I still believe that today. Uh, But it is hard sometimes, isn't it? It is hard. There are people all throughout the Bible, men and women of God, who for a time have their heads down. There's despair, there's tragedy, there's sickness, there's suffering. Uh, I believe, and I don't know how you'd calculate this, but I believe that the last few weeks in the life of our church have been maybe the darkest in the seven years of our church's history. Families struggling, people struggling because of sickness, people struggling because of work situations, people losing family members even as we speak. It's a hard season. And I'll confess, I'll just be honest with you, that uh, this week has been very difficult for me uh, to find hope in. What brings hope then? Well, going back to the book that we've been studying for a while, and this passage, I have to tell you, has given me great hope. The Lord works. He's still working. We ended last week seeing Samuel discouraged and grieved. We start this week by seeing Samuel discouraged and grieved, and the Lord, as it were, picks up his head. It's time to move on. The Lord's still at work. And as I've been telling you all throughout 1 Samuel, this is a relevant book. This isn't just a book for people around uh, 1100 B.C. This isn't just a book for people in Israel. This is a people that reflects the character of an unchanging God who loves to renew situations and bring life out of death, light out of darkness. That's the testimony of our church, isn't it? Some of you were addicted to drugs, alcohol, pornography, all sorts of things, and the Lord rescued you. That's the story of our life. And so, I preach to you this morning, being a man that's been discouraged for much of the week, but I preach to you as a man who trusts in the power of God and hopes in God, and I know so many of you do too. I hope this passage is an encouragement to you when God chooses His man. This, as I said, chapter starts uh, with a sad situation. 
Saul has not been the king that Israel needed. They wanted Saul. They wanted a king like Saul. God gave them Saul. They saw him, saw his wonderful appearance, and thought, yes, this is the guy who's going to defeat all our enemies. He did defeat a lot of their enemies. But in so many ways, he was a spiritual tragedy and actually put the people of Israel in harm in different situations. And Samuel, the one who on behalf of God anointed Saul as king, is grieved. But that's not the end of the story. God is going to bring a renewal to the people of Israel. God is going to bring a new day to Israel, and He's going to do it through a man whom He has chosen. And that word in this passage is key. The word chosen and the word see. We we translate the word uh, chosen, and sometimes we translate it see. It's the same root word in the Hebrew. So the same root word leads to us translate some things as chosen, provided for, and in other places it's, it's translated as to see. So God is seeing to it that his man, this chosen man, is the one who now becomes king of Israel. God's sovereign hand on this nation is clear as you go through this passage. He's seeing to it that his chosen one now is the one who's going to sit on the throne and lead his people. God's not done. There's darkness in Israel. God's going to bring light. And just before we kind of introduce him in the passage, let me just give you a brief, uh, some brief highlights of David's life as king. If David had a presidential library, all of these things would be detailed to the fullest. David, as king over Israel, was a king who trusted in God. Saul often didn't. David was a king who listened to the Word of God. Saul often didn't. David defeated the Philistines and other enemies. David obtained Jerusalem for the people of Israel, the capital city of Jerusalem. And in fact, in the future, there's going to be a new city called the New Jerusalem. This is the place that God has intended to rule the earth from, Jerusalem. David's the one, humanly speaking, that obtains that city. He brings the ark, the presence of God, to God's home, Jerusalem. David extends the boundaries of Jerusalem. David gives us the Psalms. David's a blessing to us. David modeled repentance for us, didn't he? Psalm 32, Psalm 51. David is called a man after God's own heart, and David is, politically speaking, a success. David's a good king. And God is the one that has chosen David. God gets all the glory for anything good coming from David's life. So, as we focus on God as we go through 1 Samuel 16, I want to do it in three parts. Let's notice what we learn about God in His work of renewal. God's doing a new work. It's a new day, as I told you. Let's see what we learn about God in this work of renewal. And I hope, I pray that this brings you a certain hope this morning. First, let's notice that God works through grievous situations. God works through grievous situations. Let me read the first paragraph, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. This is showing us that God works through grievous situations. Again, we start this passage with the idea that Samuel is grieved, grieving over Saul, grieving over the failure of his kingship. Last week, we saw that God said, hey, you're going to anoint someone new. Saul's, Saul's kingdom is done. Saul's not the guy. We're moving on. That grieved Samuel. There was so much hope in King Saul. But God determines that he's going to provide someone else. And it's interesting to see, really starting in verse 2, how this is all going to happen. The Lord says, okay, you're going to take a heifer, you're going to take a cow to, to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, and you're going to bring the sacrifice because otherwise they're going to know you're anointing a new king. Saul's going to come after you. Samuel knew that would happen. So God gives him cover, as it were. You're going to go to Bethlehem and bring a sacrifice. You see God's hand here in his providence in anointing King David. This is similar to what we saw with Saul earlier on. Saul's dad loses his donkeys. Seems like just a coincidental thing. Sends his son Saul to go look for them. Wham! He runs into the, a prophet of God. Prophet of God says, you're the man that God's going to make a king. And Saul becomes king. It seems kind of coincidental. It's not. God's hand is all over it. God's hand is all over this as well. So we see here in verses 1 through 5, Samuel grieving, but God doing something. We're done with the grief. I'm going to anoint a new person. And God gives that clear command in verse 1, fill your horn with oil and go. Fill your horn with oil and go. It's a new day. Pick up your head as it were. I'm doing something here. And this is, this is language that you see throughout Scripture. God really lifting up the head of His people. God showing His people the horizon where something is about to happen. This is something that happens all throughout the Scripture. Uh, King David himself wrote this, prayed this, sung this to God. Listen to these words. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. And let me just pause there before I get to the good part. When he says many are my foes, you know who his chief foe was at the time he wrote this? His own son. His son's trying to kill him. And he's saying they're rising against me. They're saying that there's no salvation with you. You can't save me. And then David writes this, these famous words, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and a lifter of my head. God loves to lift, lift the heads of his people who are discouraged. Happens all throughout Scripture. Hebrews 12, there's discipline that comes to People who are in sin, not trusting the Lord, there's a certain discipline because God's a father. He, he, he lovingly shepherds his children. And in Hebrews 12, 12, he says this, Therefore, because you know that discipline leads to a certain peace when you respond to it, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the paths for your feet. Again, God is a lifter of drooping hands, lifter of falling heads, falling countenances, 
This is what our God does. I'll give you another example of this. After the death of Jesus, it was a dark day. We we miss that sometimes. We know Jesus died, but He rose again. Boom, boom. No, there were three days in between that, and there was discouragement after Jesus died. Imagine being one of His disciples. You've you've literally forsaken everything to follow Him. You think He's going to lead you as the new King of Israel. He doesn't lead you in the way everyone wants to. He doesn't take over Israel politically, but you've heard Him teach, and you know He's up to something, and then He's arrested and He dies. And you're one of the ones that were with Him, so now you're in trouble, and you're in fear of the Jews who crucified Jesus, and you're afraid of being considered an insurrectionist. This is what happened after Jesus died. John 20 says this, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is now after He's risen from the dead, but His disciples don't know it yet, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. This isn't just Jesus rose from the dead. This is clearly a new day. Jesus died, rose from the dead, and it wasn't that Jesus got into that room and said, okay, guys, we got to hide. They're going to be after us again. No, 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 brand new day. Breathed on them, gave them the Holy Spirit, and launched them out to make Him known throughout the world. And that work still continues on today. It's a new day. He's not dead anymore. He speaks, tells His people peace, and as John 20 says, they are glad. Our God is a God who loves to take a grievous situation and lift up the heads of His people and set their feet on the path and move them forward again. That's what He does. He does it all throughout the Scriptures. His people are in trouble in Egypt. He sends them a leader to rescue them from Egypt, leads them out. His people are in sin and in trouble in the wilderness. He leads them one day out by Joshua, conquers the promised land. The people of God, misled, not really faithfully led by a king, Saul. God says, it's a new day. I've got a new man, David. The nation of Israel continues to thrive and flourish. And then they start to get sinful and forget their God and worship other idols. And they're literally taken away from Jerusalem, the people live there, and brought into exile in Babylon. This is not their land. They're weeping and mourning. And then he sees to it that they come out of exile, come back to Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple rebuild their home. God does this over and over and over again. So you cannot think that your situation is final if you're a Christian. The chaos of your life, the difficulty of it is final. The worst enemy we have, death, is, a, a, is an enemy that's been conquered. Christ rose from the dead. So I say this all, I say it to my heart as well, saying that our God is a God of hope, and He loves to remind His people about that over and over and over again, and He's doing it again this morning. This is a new day. The Lord's picked many of you up off the mat before, hasn't He? He's done it for me, He's done it for you, and He's not going to stop doing that. 
That's his way. Some of you have had unbelieving spouses leave you, and you've then found comfort in the Lord and his care for you and in the care that his people have brought to you. Some of you have lived a life, as I said earlier, enslaved to drugs and alcohol. Some of you can tell some sad stories. And then you are rescued. You responded to Jesus Christ and he changed your life. You're sitting in here and 20 years ago, no one would have ever thought you'd be sitting here with a family, secure, safe in God. Some of you have lived a life enslaved to sexual sin, and then you were washed. You were changed. Life was previously full of adultery, homosexuality, fornication, pornography, and then you repented of your sin and were washed, and now you stand as a son or daughter of God. God works through grievous situations. Jesus Christ came to a world Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. He came into a grievous situation and brought hope and life. So we see God right away. We're introduced to Samuel's countenance in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 1, and then we see God tell him he's got something else to do. This should give us hope. This is the way our God works. But what else do we notice about God from this passage? In verses 6 through 13, We notice that God works through people who have his heart. God works through people who share his heart. Their desires are God's desires. Their life is their desires, their wants are patterned after what he wants. We see this in David. We're introduced to David. Let me read verses 6 through 13. When they came, he looked on Eliab. This is Samuel. So he comes to Jesse and his sons and his family. They came, they're all together, they're washed, they're consecrated. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Sees Eliab, the son of Jesse, thinks, God, that's got to be the guy. Now remember, we've been fascinated by someone's looks before and that didn't work out so well. Samuel's fascinated by Eliab. He thinks this guy has the makings of The king, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, Saul, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is the Lord saying to Samuel, there's something deeper than a physical appearance. I see on the inside I'm going after a man whose inside is impressive, not the outside. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, another son. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but listen, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Okay, we'll be here waiting. And then he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers 
And notice this, just like we heard from Saul, about Saul, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So David is brought in. He's the one they wouldn't think would be the king. He is handsome still. There's a lot of speculation as to why the Holy Spirit included this in our scriptures. Why do we need to learn that David was handsome? You'd kind of think that they had handsome Saul, not him. Handsome Eliab, Jesse's son, is not the guy. So you'd, you'd think that David probably wasn't handsome and God was going to use him. But for some reason, God made David handsome. It's not about the looks. There you go. It's not about handsome or not. Saul was handsome. David was handsome. One had a heart after God. One didn't. God's looking at the heart. He's looking at the heart. So Samuel takes his horn, anoints him. And as I told you before, the Holy Spirit operated a little bit differently in those days than he does now. We see this change in Acts 2. We say that we see now that the people of God in today's day are indwelt by the Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit would come upon certain people at certain times for certain missions. So we saw in chapter 10 that the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and Saul did a number of faithful things and also another number of unfaithful things. Well, here, Samuel anoints David with the oil, sign of God's approval, and the Holy Spirit rushes upon David and remains with him. Now, we're going to see in the third point, verse 14, the Spirit leaves Saul. Spirit leaves Saul, goes on to David. That's really kind of the theme of the rest of the book. Saul's going off the scene, David's coming on the scene, but as David's coming on the scene and Saul's going off. Saul's trying to kill him. So are other people. We'll see that later. But the Spirit of the Lord clearly is rejecting Saul and coming upon David. And again, I want you to take note of the fact that God works. He's determining to work through a person who has his heart, whose desires are God's desires. While everybody else looks at externals, there's something going on with this younger boy, this shepherd, that is going to be important, and people can't see the greatness that's going to come. They can't see it. And this is a good lesson for us. We, and I say we as the church, the universal church, we are so drunk on externals. Externals are so impressive to us. If the church has a giant new building, it must be healthy. Nope. If a church has old decorations and, you know, just unimpressive small building that kind of smells a little bit, there must be no life there. Not necessarily. Nope. It's not about the outside. What's happening on the inside? Os Guinness, who studied the state of the church in the 20th century, wrote about the difference between superficiality and real depth. And he said that evangelicals in the 20th century, and I would argue still continues on today, were so focused on a superficial faith and weren't focused on real depth. Listen, I'm not against devotionals, little devotional studies. I use them, read them. But we are a people who prefer devotionals, quick, easy, microwavable, rather than reading deep things and thinking and going slow. 
That's just what we are. We want everything instantly. Everything kind of has to wow us right away. I'll check out a church. If I don't feel some warm fuzzies, I'm out of there. This is who we are. It's what we do. Listen to what Guinness said. The faith world of John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, John Jay, William Wilberforce, Hannah Moore, Lord Shaftesbury, Catherine Booth, Hudson Taylor, and he goes on. The, the faith world of those people is disappearing. In its place, a new evangelicalism is arriving in which therapeutic self-concern overshadows knowing God. I'll read that sentence again. In its place, a new evangelicalism is arising in which therapeutic self-concern overshadows knowing God, and spirituality displaces theology. Marketing triumphs over mission. Opinion polls outweigh reliance on biblical exposition. Concerns for power and relevance are more obvious than concern for piety and faithfulness. The church today often is concerned with external things. You take the average young family moving to an area looking for a church. I'm not talking about any of you. You're all different. You know, you're, you're all different. Take the average young family moving to a town looking for a church. If you get small, a small church with bad decor and a pastor who's not out on social media and everything like that, it's just, it's not really going to be a consideration. But you go to a place where there's bounce houses and lasers and brunch when you walk in and all sorts of things. Ah, this is the kind of church I'm looking for. We focus on that. We do. It, it appeals to us in a certain sense. And listen, just to be clear, this isn't saying that any church with a bouncy house for your kids is an unfaithful church. I know some really faithful ones like that. And it's also not saying the ones with bad decor and no social media presence are necessarily faithful churches. That's not true either. What I'm saying is you can't see by the outside the health. God knows what's going on on the inside. God knows. So, just a little tip. If you're ever in the place of needing to choose a church again, okay, maybe you're doing that now. Maybe, who knows, in a year you're uprooted by God's providence and you've got to move somewhere else. If you're ever looking for a spiritual environment and you understand what God says about looking at the heart of something, not just the externals, let me just give you some advice, okay? You're not looking for the most famous preacher the most carefully crafted video messages, a state-of-the-art building. You're not looking for any of those. Those things can come or go. You should look for a place where the Word is proclaimed faithfully. And I'm not talking about referred to. Not a place that refers to the Bible, but actually teaches and proclaims the Bible. You're looking for a place where people who work at loving one another, who work at love, and it's not easy, and it's messy. You typically want a messy place because people are working at things and living with each other and enduring one another and being patient with one another and confessing sin to one another. You want a place where people are working at love. You want to be at a place where people are repenting, confessing sin, weekly, daily, privately, publicly. You want a place where people are shepherded. You want a place where 
shepherds, leaders in the church are not always just on video for the whole world to see, but they're quietly sitting in an office, praying with someone, weeping with someone, opening the Bible with someone. You want something that's true on the inside, not just something that looks good externally. God is seeing to it that the nation of Israel is blessed by a man who has a heart that beats after his. It's not about what he looks like. It's not about how tall he is. It's not about the fact that he's the oldest son, because he's not the oldest son. He's the shepherd boy. He's not one of the sons that goes out to war. He's the one that brings those sons lunch. But God knows his heart, and that's what God's going to use to change a people. I mean, friends, King David has been a blessing to you and I. If you've ever found any solace or comfort in the Psalms, King David was a blessing to you. And God's the one that saw that that one was his man because of what was in his heart. So God works through people who have his heart. Third and finally, what else do we learn about God as he does this renewing work in Israel? Verses 14 to 23 show us that God works through his servants who bring grace. God works through his servants who bring grace. Here's what we're going to see. David is anointed, and this is a private anointing. This is anointing that happens like with his family, with Jesse and his brothers. They know now that he's going to be king. The world doesn't know now. The world doesn't know yet. Israel doesn't know yet. More importantly, Saul doesn't know yet that David's going to be king. He'll learn that soon, but David's the secret up-and-coming one-day king who's been anointed. So this anointing is pointing to a future realization. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. What's going on here? Let's pause. The spirit of God is now on David, no longer on Saul. And it's not just that Saul's without any spirit. God sees to it, and in his providence, uses a demonic spirit to torment Saul. God uses sinful things for judgment purposes, for sanctifying purposes. You see this in 2 Corinthians 12, don't you, with Saul, a messenger from Satan, to be a thorn in the flesh for Paul. I should say Paul. God uses that for His purposes. God is not the author of sin. He is not a sinner Himself. But if sin is in the world, He's going to use it for His purposes. Here, He's using it as a judgment on Saul. He's using the power of darkness to judge Saul because of Saul's demonstrated unfaithfulness to him. Saul hasn't been listening to God. He's rejected God. He's the arrogant one. He's the prideful one. And now he's being tormented. God uses the Chaldean army, those evil people, to discipline his own people in the book of Habakkuk. God is sovereign over all those things. He will get his people's attention, and he will judge those who reject him. And that's what's happening. Verse 15, and Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. There's, there's a certain depression that Saul falls into. He's being tormented. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it and you'll be well. So, so we're your servants. Like, command that we go and find a musician to help 
bring you some music from the lyre just to ease just your mind. And we know the benefit of music, right? We know that music is a common grace that does that type of thing. Music can calm you down. I'd, enc- I'd encourage you if you're a Christian and you're in a season of despair and difficulty that you put on lots of music, beautiful music with good lyrics. This is a gift from God. And God gives Saul a gift of grace here too because David is going to come play his lyre and it's going to soothe Saul. God's still gracious and God's using his servant David to bring this grace. So these men are saying, let us, let us go find a musician to help bring you some grace, bring you some peace. When our oldest boys were little, uh, you know, it's boys and growing up and toys and bumps and bruises and loud and things like that. And sometimes we'd put on, on the TV uh, the, the piece called Gabriel's Oboe. You ever heard Gabriel's Oboe? If you haven't heard Gabriel's Oboe, that is an application point to this sermon. Go and listen to Gabriel's Oboe. A beautiful piece of music. And so we, we put on Gabriel's Oboe and all, all of a sudden just you get quiet in the house. They're just locked into the TV. Just, just music, beautiful music, brings about a certain peace. It, it has since this time and before. So David, one who can play beautiful music, is brought in. Verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So there was cert- there's certainly a, an impressive set of qualities to David. But what was the most important thing? His heart. Don't forget that. So these men know of David. They know that he can play well. They know that he's a man that would be a good company for a king. They know that, and they say that the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. It's really interesting here, again, providence of God, that Saul's tormented, and by sheer coincidence, Saul's servants know of someone who can play the lyre, harp-like instrument, for Saul. We know the secret here. It happens to be the next king. Saul doesn't know yet. Just coincidence, right? The Bible's just full of these amazing coincidences. No, it's the plan of God to get David in the presence of Saul. But I want you to see David comes into the presence of an unfaithful, arrogant king, and he brings grace to this unfaithful, arrogant king. Kind of like what we do in the world. This world is hostile toward God, and we come and we seek to bring the presence of Christ and improve it. This is what's going on here. Something also, I think, pretty fascinating here, the verb sent to send. Really, you could outline this passage in two points. You could say that 
Samuel sent to get David, and really God's behind that, right? So God is sending to get David to anoint him as king. And here you see someone who's currently acting like an enemy of God, Saul himself, send for David. So you could call this the sending of David. So Saul sends for David. He tells Jesse, can you send your son David to me? So God's going to see to it that David is sent to Israel to bless Israel, and Saul wants David to be a blessing to him as well. So Samuel summons David, God summons David, Saul summons David. Clearly, the world is in need of God's servants. God's people are a blessing to the world, should be blessings to the environments that they're in, just like David is here. Verse 23, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. David was the one that brought that grace to Saul. God himself being gracious to Saul through his servant David. Again, this is a picture of what we do as Christians. The Bible says that we are lights in the world, right? Lights are good things. You, you want light. You want to know where you're going. We're lights in the world. We're also called to be salt. We're even said that our speech should be like salt. And what does that speech do? It gives grace to those who hear. That's what God's people are to be, just like David here. So, brother and sister, consider all the places that God has you. Where has God placed you? God is going to, I mean, one day David was out with the sheep and someone came and said, hey, King Saul needs you. This is the doing of God. And David came to King Saul and would help to refresh him by playing the music. God has you in a place. God gave you the kids he gave you. He gave you the spouse he gave you. He gave you the friends he gave you. He gave you the neighborhood that you live in. This is where you are. We know, New Testament teaches us this as well, we are to be the messengers of Christ. We are to be His presence where we are. We are to make every situation that we're in better. We're to represent God in that situation. And when you represent God in a situation, you are representing life. Where God is, there is life. David, servant of God, brings his instrument, and notice what the very last verse says, Saul is refreshed. Saul is helped. This is what the Christian does. The Christian helps. That's why when you look back throughout history, who starts hospitals? Christians start hospitals. Who cares for orphans and widows? Christians care for orphans and widows. This is what we do. You see it here in David. God uses his servants to bring grace to the world. He does it here with Saul. He does it through us. This is what we do. Dale Ralph Davis, the commentator on this passage, says this really well. You got to hear this. He says this, they are the ones who are the salt of the earth. He's talking about us. That is, who keep society and culture from rotting into complete decay. Who keep the world from being worse than it is. They are a divinely granted restraint upon the earth's putrefaction. They keep the world from drowning in its own vomit, which strangely enough it craves. This is what we do. We go into messy situations, 
and we seek to help. This is what David does. We're going to see to it. Right now, this seems really sweet. Oh, that's really special. David goes into Saul's home and plays the harp. I can just hear it right now. And Saul is, well, soon David's going to play his heart and Saul's going to start throwing spears at him, which is also helpful for Christians to see. God puts his spirit on a person. We know that his spirit's inside of us. God uses his people in whom his spirit dwells to be in situations to bring blessing. But does that always mean those situations are easy and comfortable for us? No, it doesn't. David is anointed, put into service, and he's going to try to be killed. We just prayed for brothers and sisters around the world who are indwelt by the Spirit, wanting to be a blessing by the world, and now the world is coming after them. We see it all the way back here with David. Jesus taught this. He's the Savior of the world. He's powerful. He's strong. And we're like, yes, we're on his team. And he says, you're going to follow me to death. My way is the way of the cross. Cross before the crown. Follow me. David's life is really, in many ways, a picture of our own life. David was chosen to be a blessing to Israel. We've been chosen to make a difference in this world. We indwelt by the Spirit of God. We've got some great opportunities to serve our King. I want to end by making the obvious point. I've told you that David is clearly the new guy in the scene. David is the one that God has chosen. I've even made connections to the New Testament that talk about us being chosen and used by God. Our hearts to line up after God's heart. Our hearts to be in a place that propels us into situations where we can bring grace. David's been chosen by God. We've been chosen by God. But let's not miss, let's not miss the great main character himself, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God's own son, chosen by him to come into a grievous situation, a grievous world, to take on the form of a slave, Philippians chapter 2, to humble himself to be in that situation, to die for our sins, rise again to bring us hope. Jesus Christ, the ultimate one that worked through this grievous situation, this life of sin, this world of sin. Jesus Christ himself, was there ever a man after the heart of God like him? He is one with the Father, John 10 tells us. Jesus Christ, John 10, speaks of Jesus as a shepherd. You ever heard of anybody else with the heart of God being a shepherd? David. David is a shepherd after God's heart. He shepherds his people Israel. What an amazing guy, and he also is a sinner. Jesus Christ, shepherd, man after God's own heart, never sinned and cares for his people. We are fascinated with David. We worship and adore Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, man after God's own heart. And is there a better picture of a man who comes and serves than Jesus? Jesus teaching in John 10, 45, I did not come to this world to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is the one that this passage begs you to look at. We're impressed by David. There's one more impressive that's coming. 
We know him. We know that he came. We know that he died and rose again. We know that he's the one that gives hope. So if you are without hope today, I think we all understand this world beats you up. This world is cursed. It's not easy. But we have Jesus Christ who came to bring life. If I took this microphone and just walked through the aisles, we know each other's stories. I can just say, listen to this person talk about the renewal that God did in their life. Listen to this person now talk about how God took and brought beauty from ashes. Look at how this person was seemingly dead in their trespasses and sins, and then God made them alive. We, we could be here forever <coughs> talking about how God has brought renewal into this body. So listen, don't despair. Our God's still a God that brings hope, brings renewal. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Father, we need all of us to be reminded of the hope that we have in you. I am asking that you would make us, other Christians in Prescott in this area, the most optimistic people that there are in this area. I pray that you would use us to bring grace to messy situations. Some of us have neighbors who are hurting, and they don't have the presence of God around them in any way, but we live next to them. Some of us have family members who are struggling, and there's no other Christian witness, presence of Christ around them, but we're there. Some of our workplaces don't have any presence of Christ, but then we walk through the door on Monday morning. Father, use us to bring grace. Encourage us in the grace that you've shown to us. And Father, ultimately, my prayer for this week for us is to give us hope, lift up our heads. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.